hello and welcome to a podcast that is called Masculine Feminine. My name is Nicholas Margellos, and with me today and always is my dearest friend Grant Kettering. Uh, today we also have a very special guest. We promised that we would, and her name is Mary Kettering. Beautiful. Well, this also is. My cousin. It's going very well. Uh, I am very excited to do a ton of learning today. Grant, how about you? I think that's mostly what I'm prepared for, is just learning. I have... Beautiful. Can't... Can't wait. (laughs) Are there... Like, right off the bat, before we even get into, like, questions, are there things that, like, you're like, I don't know anything about this? Me or Mary? You. Oh, Before we get into, like, the... As a male, I don't know anything about femininity. That's what I'll say. All right. Well, here. Let me ask this then. <laughs> what do you What do you think that you know the most about then? What do, what I do you know think the, you know the most about then? In life? No. For like within <laughs> femininity, femininity. Like, what do you think? You're like. I think I understand this pretty well. Yeah. What are your preconceived notions of what you think it means? I think. I think it's a social construct that I've been made to believe. <laughs> no, I like that. I mean, it's, a, it's interesting. Why, 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 why is it that you think that you think that? Um, because I, I mean, we talked about this last week. I don't, I don't necessarily think that the word masculinity or femininity should really exist, and that it's just ways that we're told to act as males or females. I agree. Um, uh, so, Grant, do, do you have uh, questions uh, for our dear guest today? I, I do, but I would like to start off with just asking her to explain a little bit about her background so that we kind of know where she's coming from and her authority. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. So. Okay. All right. I'm happy to share. I'll try and keep it short. Um, (laughs) I tend to be a rambler. Cut, cut, cut. So, um, I grew up in Batavia, Illinois, so a suburb right outside of Chicago. Um, and growing up there, uh, in the, I graduated high school in 2007, and I think that the, um, kind of wave of asking kids to think critically is something that's coming about even more so now um, than it was. So as a kid, I think my only real understanding of um, what it meant to be female or what it meant to be male was quite inherent from what I was told, you know, by what I saw. I had two working parents, um, but I was raised by a football coach. So a lot of, like, masculine... um, stereotypes especially like what we're going to be talking about today like toxic masculinity that definitely comes into play kind of inherently when being raised by a football coach um however i don't think i was given the uh idea that toxic femininity should be my response to toxic masculinity um, That's good. So yeah, so that was that was quite a nice way of being raised. Um, growing up, I ran track, and this is what I tell my students when I introduce gender. Um, I wasn't bad at track, so if I was ra- running a race and I was going to beat a boy, if we were running in the same race, I would always feel a bit hesitant to beat the boy because I knew it was going to somehow be embarrassing for them. But at the same time, I wanted to beat them because it was me being more powerful. And inherently, I just knew that that was going to become an issue for this kid. And so it was always a bit of a a special victory for me. But at the same time, I knew it was going to be just emasculating for the guy to be beaten by a girl. And so that was kind of my first like gender stereotype like understanding my own role um as as a high schooler um and then 
I moved to the uh, state of Montana for undergrad and I ran track there and similar situations, but never ran with the boys uh, in races. However, I would run with the boys for practice um, just because they were my friends and I enjoyed running with them on some days more than others. But in Montana, you have an extreme amount of um, toxic femininity, sorry, yeah, and toxic masculinity. Um, and in the sports world, I think that comes in a really sharp relief. Um, and so being in that state as well, there's a lot of, uh, stereotypes that there's not often a counter narrative to. And when you have those counter narratives, um, there's a lot of, uh, work being done by those in society to kind of keep that equilibrium of, uh, gender roles in a very, in a very strict social structure. Um, and so my first real kind of understanding uh, that what I was becoming interested in, which is gender roles for women, um, kind of came about when I graduated from the University of Montana. Um, Montana, the University of Montana, I went to Missoula. Uh, that's kind of been in the press uh, for negative reasons. And those reasons are like the rapes that occurred on campus um, by the football team. I actually dated a guy who uh, was living with the like number, the kind of guy that started the entire process. So I was in, I was in really close contact and quite good friends with um, one of the guys who is currently in prison for rape. So really close proximity to somebody who has very much um, had the the toxic masculinity label um, and seeing that kind of manifest in, in a negative outcome. But uh, that also kind of plays into what societal factors are at play. Um, when I moved uh, after college to the Republic of Georgia, I moved there to teach. And that's in Eastern Europe or Eurasia. And there, um, that was kind of the the crux for me, the, the place where uh, I really realized the freedoms that American women have on a, on a very you know, obvious level, and also um, the damaging effect of gender roles. And then, you know, for me, for a long time, I thought, oh, well, American women have such freedom because we can do so many things that I, can't, I couldn't do in Georgia. In Georgia, um, rape was not a crime. Um, there was overt like sexual harassment, uh, physical violence. Women are controlled economically by their husbands. Women have moved into different roles in society, um, but their social agency and political agency have not moved in the same direction or at, at the same pace. So um, that, to me, there was a lot of, as a 24-year-old, a lot of like difference um, Georgia is this way, America is this way. Uh, but the more I traveled, the more I kind of experienced, um, the more I taught really, because I started teaching in different schools in different countries. And you just start to real, realize these gender roles are very much from your own lens. And I came home and I just really wanted to help empower other women and kind of understand the the like what lies beneath um, these gender roles. And so that led me to earning my master's in women and gender studies from Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland, um, which brought me into women's representation. So when uh, Grant just said uh, the ways you're told to act uh, as a male or a female, um, that was my my clear kind of understanding um, that our gender and, and there's feminist theorists that kind of go along this vein like Judith Butler or Gay Tuckman um, that our genders are performed but we have to understand who's creating our narrative to perform those genders um, and so I, I focused on and I'm still focusing on women's representation in the area of um, executive office 
And so currently, as I was working on it today, mm-hmm. um, I'm working to, on a proposal for um, a PhD program in sociology. I teach sociology along with history and psych. Um, and in that vein, I'm looking at kind of what are the social factors that have prohibited women from uh, gaining executive office under patriarchal foreign occupation. In the Soviet Union is going to be my area of study if my proposal is accepted. Um, and I will be comparing Georgia with the Baltic states who are, have been liberated and there's three female executives um, and then Britain. So they've had two female executives. Georgia's had zero. So I'm looking at the correlation between occupation and their ability to gain a female executive. Even though it is still limited because the female executives in the Baltic states are presidents instead of prime ministers. So while it is an, it is an executive role, they are more ceremonial than they are um, people who can act with with real agency on behalf of of the people of those countries so that's kind of my background it's it's gone from you know personal experience from high school to college um i get i would say i definitely have changed quite a bit through these experiences that i've had um in my way of approaching like i remember in college i would be a bit frustrated dating certain people and being like well you're on a sports team but i'm not a jersey chaser because you're dating me and i wear a jersey where's the equality like that's very surface level but um but you know it's kind of gone come full circle and i have plenty left to learn but um it's 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 taken me down a very very kind of um tracked kind of interest and i think one that's very important So to kind of like segue into uh, the what do we understand of masculinity and femininity, um, I asked my students this this week. We're doing gender in America in, through the lens of social justice, and so um, I asked my students, you know, what is masculinity and what do you think of of the term femininity? And I said, you know, just to, just define this using your brain, nothing else in groups and they just kind of stared at me for a while because that's what they do and um and then they you know they kind of they didn't want to give a pure definition and my class is very very diverse in the sense that we have uh homosexual students bisexual students um different races uh present and there's only nine of them so from a group that's small i'm at a small private art school uh, and they're, they're very comfortable speaking about those types of topics because they've been speaking about those types of topics. So um, the, the, their responses were, you know, if you're masculine, like I said, give me some, some adjectives. So like hard and powerful and strong and, you know, stoic. And then for women, it was like soft and, you know, kind of weak, nice, you know, those types of things, which in this very instance is exactly what we're trying to avoid, toxic masculinities and toxic femininities, because they can become very dangerous. So your your students, you're talking about your students giving some kind of basic definition of femininity through adjectives do uh, do you have a a general rule of femininity that you go by or do you kind of leave it open I think this I think our ideas of masculinity and femininity are shaped by the media more than anything Um, and then there's also historical narratives Um, and the examples that I gave for my class were, you know, in the 19, early 1900s, pink was a man's color. Um, in the 1960s, more women were in STEM than men. And then, so science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Mm-hmm. And then in the 1930s, 
all men were cheerleaders. There were no female cheerleaders. So historically, they have to see those kind of trends as though now, if you're a male cheerleader, there's a stigma. We had a real issue with George Bush being a cheerleader. Uh, why wasn't he a football player? Gerald Ford played for Michigan, so he's a good guy. Ronald Reagan played, uh, well, a cowboy, all right? Um, and so we want that kind of that masculine, hard, rough, powerful, brave um, image. And I think that stems directly, I mean, if you read anything that Teddy Roosevelt wrote, our great warmonger president, um, he is seen as, as a brilliant leader. He never fought in a war, but he felt that as though you, were, you had to fight in a war to be masculine. Where he got that idea, he was a great reader of histories. So I think our history is very much what shapes our idea of what masculine and feminine are. But I think those narratives are very often told by white aristocratic males as we know our history is written. Um, and so we have to be careful of whose lens is, this is being told through. Uh, there are very few female directors, very few female producers, and of those that are, they're getting their funding from men. If you look at our social media, um, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, those are all created by white men. So the lens is always male. And that's something that these kids need to be aware of, that people need to be aware of, that the, the beautiful woman on the, on the television screen, she's only beautiful on a man's, through a male's gaze. Um, and so that's, that's, very, that's very damaging in a way that um, we have just that one narrative. And it would take a lot of work and a lot of time, which is when history comes into play to kind of create enough counter narratives to to change the tide. And we can, because we can see from the examples that I've given earlier, pink is a man's color, men are cheerleaders, and women work in, in STEM, um, that those things can change, but it depends on who's controlling the narrative, who's allowing those changes to take place. And women become workers in STEM because they were typists. And so they were the, and that, and that was the female job, but then they were the only ones that could work the typewriters. And then that graduated to computer and so forth. I can't remember the question. What was the question? <laughs> uh, I mean, looking... and Teddy Roosevelt did fight in a war. Sorry. I mean, like he created one, but he fought. So eventually <laughs> he created one and fought in Cuba. Oh, let me think about it. I'll get back to you on that. Fact check me. He fought. <laughs> I mean, we're just talking about femininity. Um, oh, what creates our idea of femininity? What, oh, what it means what's, to me. Yeah, what's more like your idea of what okay. femininity is? So that's where we were going with that. So I guess um, for me, femininity is... Here's what, I, here's what I say. Like, you can be... Anyone can be a feminist because... As a feminist, you look at, and this is just my perspective, the other. So the way I study gender is through mass is through philosophy. Um, that was that was like grounding for or like the frame of reference for my study was masters of philosophy. I don't know if that's a, as, is how it would be studied here in the states, but in Ireland, that's how they approached it. And so um, I think that the other is when you look at male and female, but those who don't associate with either, who are they? Um, those who are androgynous, those who are trans, those who are, you know, who is the man who, you know, paints his nails and wears lipstick, but identifies as being straight? Um, is it sexual orientation? Is that gender? No. You know, is it your sex organs you're born with? Is that gender? No, those fall under the umbrella of gender. But um, for me, it's what femininity is kind of what we've been told. But that's not necessarily like that. Those would be like feminine attributes as a social construction. But I think as a feminist, you are aware of the other and you advocate for the other to have agency. And in this case, the other would be anyone who is not in a position of power 
and who is not kind of who is kind of a social not a, I wouldn't say a social deviant, but um, somebody who kind of deviates from the norm or the gendered norms, um, and so therefore, like femininity to me is anyone who or it is kind of living out your life unencumbered by those social structures, which are impossible to avoid, but by being very aware of them and asking yourself continuously, like, am I doing this or am I feeling this way because I'm female by sex? Or is it because I feel this way as a human being and it is nearly impossible to know because we are creatures of our social structures. But, um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's being very aware of the gender role that you play and then always questioning, you know, is this because of what I've been told or is this because of, you know, something I really want to do? And in that case, like, almost no decisions are your own <laughs> as a sociologist. Right. So it sounds like you've kept it pretty open. Uh, it's very... Um, <laughs> I, think, I think femininity, I think you can be a feminist. And I think, I think femininity is, is a social construct, 100%. Sure. Um, I think you, being a feminist means that you advocate for the other. So do you think that like our modern uh, ideas of femininity are just modern? Uh, you know, like like you said soft and weak and uh those sort of things is that is that purely like maybe a recent thing um or or because like you said pink is was men's color what was was weakness and softness always uh associated with women or is that kind of a something that's changed as well i think two things i think one it's been associated with white women And this comes, again, like back to history. Um, Weakness and softness, I think, are associated with the higher classes who were allowed to be weak, who were allowed to be soft, who had the time to be those things. Um, There's a big, you know, at least in America, the movement in the 60s and the 50s and the 70s, you know, women getting out of the house, very better for Dan, you know, uh, give us our rights. We're not going to go back after... Uh, working in the factories from World War II, like my husband's here, but he's not going to replace me, and so forth. Um, But you always had women working. Women were always out in the workforce. It's just they were minority women, poor women, women who didn't have time to stay home and become soft and delicate. And I think that was very much reinforced in the 50s when men came home from World War II um, and said, you know, this is my place. We have lost that masculinity of war because of technology, because women... Technology is a huge part of that. It's not masculine to send a drone. Um, That doesn't doesn't fulfill that need. Um, And anyone can do it, and a female can do it. So, and we don't use hand-to-hand combat. Um, it's also not masculine to shoot a gun. Uh, if we look back at the, I mean, there, there are certain technologies that have been rejected in the past. So if you, in the 1500s, um, Jap, Japanese uh, technicians or, or inventors created guns, but they were rejected because it was not masculine and samurai swords were more honorable. So um, those are the, those are the kind of, stereotypes that we put onto these um, actions of, of masculinity, which is dangerous, physically dangerous, because we're talking about samurai swords and such. Um, but I think when you're looking at um, kind of like, is it modern? Is it not modern? I think, yes, in the scheme of things, it is very modern. Um, but there, I think that the kind of softness and dainty kind of pale is what I think of, um, mm-hmm. comes from being inside and comes from the, and that's like a level of aristocracy and, and, you know, you have this, this, I don't need to work. Um, and then as that 
as it's associated with work, it's, you know, if you're taking a man's job, then you shouldn't be working. So you are too delicate to do that. You're too, you know, frail and so forth. And so a lot of, a lot of, and this is where, you know, my white uh, lens comes in. I mean, I'm a white woman, so I don't know. And I, but I, but I am aware that it is primarily a white woman's issue when it comes to um, that historical narrative of I want to be let out into the workplace, whereas other people have been there. It's just that, you know, they're not getting the, the same job. So if you look at the very popular movie, The Help, those women, you know, you've got the whole narrative with, I can't remember the girl's name, it's like Reader, Readers, Reader. <laughs> I don't know what her name is. <laughs> Emma Stone. Um, and yeah. her, her, Skeeter, her whole deal is like, she wants to be a journalist and like, women's rights. But those other women are already working. They're working. And that's why she's interviewing them. They're mm-hmm. maids, you know, and, and they're, they're black Americans. So it's, it's the problem, you know, like there's, there's many different lenses that we need to look through and race is one of them. Class is one of them. Um, sexual orientation is one of them, but that's like femininity the idea of like softness and those things those are those are somewhat contemporary but they they kind of they stem back all the way to you know industrial revolution prior to the industrial revolution um so so yeah that that i would say that it is somewhat contemporary i think there are different ways of going about kind of countering that and there's a lot of countering to the kind of like soft and weak. But I can tell you like my, I coach track and I coach shot put and discus and my girls have a big problem with, they don't want to look muscular when I tell them to lift. Hmm. I'm like, you won't gain muscle, <laughs> you weigh 90 pounds. So, and you're in high school, you burn a thousand calories a day. Just sit. <laughs> <laughs> So, so yeah, there is a, there's a pushback up against looking masculine. They wore gloves, which I thought was hilarious because they thought they were going to get calluses on their hands. I was like, so, you're lifting a five-pound weight. I think we need to uh, delineate that, that, that those ideas, like the softness and, and stuff like that, um, that, that, that's like the ideal femininity, right? Like, that's what uh, is expected, um, but I think that well, I don't necessarily know it's what is expected. It is what has been told. Until sure. recently, there has I mean, and I wouldn't say until recently because in the seventies, I want to say it was seventy three or seventy eight. Uh, it was the largest women's uh, constitutional convention. Can't remember where it was. Headed by Gloria Steinem, um, and. That was in the 70s, and that was pushing back against... I mean, that's where you get the shoulder pads. Mm-hmm. Like, the like I'm not going to be this soft, weak person. So, um, it comes in waves, but at the same time, I think that if we if we don't even have to dig too deep to find that there, there's been a pushback against that softness, and I think the ideal... Like, it, is this the ideal feminist or feminism? Um, I think that's very much like the male lens, or like the the masculine lens and that masculinity and femininity in that regard are not mutually exclusive like one is dependent upon the other yeah we talked about that a lot uh in our last episode specifically about masculinity and um i what we came to was we weren't sure if there was actually any difference between the what what masculinity had been defined as and the ideal man versus what toxic masculinity is so um do you think that that's similar in femininity is is there such thing as femininity that's not toxic or um are all these constructs that have been been given to us toxic Toxic masculinity becomes toxic. It's okay to be a man and want to be strong. It's okay to be a female and want to be soft. 
whatever mm-hmm. those things mean. You can you can identify with either of those. Um, toxic masculinity comes when women. So I, I looked up this case of recent toxic masculinity gone awry. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so down in Margaret River, a place I'd actually visited, which is what I was interested in. It's in Western Australia, and it's a very beautiful place, and it's very, it's quite remote. Western Australia, nobody really goes to, um, because the only place there is Perth, and it's, you know, it's kind of its own deal. So I assume that the gender role is very similarly to the way it, it occurs in the, in the United States and Montana, when you're removed from, um... When you're removed from diversity, when you're removed from uh, difference of opinion, you're going to live in an area where the gender roles are much stronger. That's a huge assumption, but it's just kind of what I what I'm putting on these people. Um, there was a man who and his wife they were going through a custody battle with their ch- of their children. There was three children, sorry, four children. Uh, the wife, the man's wife. And then uh, the the not estranged husband, but the husband, um, and the father-in-law of the four grandchildren and the husband and wife was really upset by the fact that um, there was a custody battle going on. And so this is where toxic masculinity becomes very very dangerous. Okay, um, he, the the grandfather was upset. He couldn't handle the custody battle that was going back and forth between the husband and wife with the grandchildren. And so he, crazily, like shoots himself. But before he shoots himself, he shoots all four of his grandchildren, his daughter, and his wife. It's the largest mass shooting in Australia since um, they had one big one, which I can usually remember the name of, but that is when they removed all of their guns, basically. Mm. Um, and so Australia's had, there was one mass shooting in, that Australia, unlike the United States, was able to control their gun use. Um, but the problem with it was, with and how this relates to uh, toxic masculinity, is there was a tragic kind of narrative around the grandfather. He couldn't handle the emotion, uh, the stress of the the custody battle, which was turning ugly. He didn't want his grandchildren to go through this. And because he is masculine, because he has no way to express his feelings, um, he's just a good guy who who is suffering and and needed to act out, but he couldn't control himself. And so we have to sympathize with that man. You have a very similar situation with Oscar Pistorius, the Blade Runner, uh, 400 meter runner who shot his girlfriend to death. Um, South Africa, very dangerous place for women um, because the men there have a specific sex role and if they act outside of it, they're not able to handle their feelings and you know, they, they, can't express their emotions and so a lot of their emotion is expressed through violence and again we feel bad for Oscar Pistorius because oh Oscar Pistorius he just you know he's just a victim of his circumstance but that's toxic masculinity men can control their feelings men can have all of the the entire range of emotions you know um and yet when we when we kind of remove the alternative for men it's not that they it's it's society kind of sympathizing with the with the i don't know what's the word assailant with the bad guy like when when we're sympathizing with oscar pistorius when we're sympathizing with this australian grandfather um then we're we're empowering the man and his actions but it's also in reverse we're taking away the um, power of women and so toxic femininity in this regard and in every regard I believe um, is that placating is weakness is kind of um, being scared being afraid of their their the men being afraid of their spouse just kind of letting things go not standing up for themselves all of those types of activities that's toxic femininity because that's going to lead to a dangerous situation for women so i wouldn't say that 
any type of um, like feminine or masculine stereotype is going to be toxic because in my mind like toxic is when there's been too much of a bad thing to the point where it's going to poison you or it's going to harm you whereas sometimes being told you can't do something as a woman is going to make you feel empowered or angry and then you're going to act out in a way that is positive for example in track i know that i'm going to somehow embarrass this boy but it actually makes me want to beat that boy you know what i mean more so than i would want to beat a girl like i want to beat a girl but it's better to beat a boy because i'm not supposed to do it so there is that kind of like rebelness when it comes to like defying your gender role i don't know if it's the same for men uh if you're if it's you know i'm going to be a rebel and i'm going to be uh, women's studies major I can tell you there's only one self-identified ma- uh, s- straight man in my course of not many people but you know it, my first question when I saw Paul was you know what's he doing here because mm-hmm. in my understanding like women's interests have only been for women because I see I very rarely see the opposite. I invited a man to the women's march in Dublin, and I, he told me, you know, why would I go to that? And that's the usual response. So even my father would, hasn't been to a women's march in Chicago, and there's been two. My mom's interpreted one of them, and similar response, like, oh, that's for the ladies, but it's not. It, that's that's a problem. Like we we see these things as as one camp or the other. Um, and so, so, and, and that's, that's generational. Um, and that's, that's a blanket statement. There are plenty of men that show up. I like, I loved it when I was in Dublin, there was a guy, he's rode the train for the first time. He was like 90 years old and his daughter lived in America and he hated that Trump was her president. Mm-hmm. So he like rode to Dublin to march for his daughter. <laughs> um, so you always have those, those instances as well um and ireland is is you know god i would like to say it's behind even though they have just you know repealed the eighth amendment and we just you know appointed dean uh brett kavanaugh who's <laughs> vowing to overthrow <laughs> wade we might soon be much more um we might soon be kind of behind the the pace when it comes to gender equality on the female side (laughs) (laughs) only (laughs) um but yeah and i mean like those that toxic masculinity and the toxic femininity they lead to things like not having control over your own um your own body and abortion is a human right because if it's men and women that's not necessary it's it's not a strictly female issue and if we're all equal under the law, we should have abortion rights. Um, we've got 30 countries in this world that practice female genital mutilation, strictly only to control women's sex um, drive and sexual pleasure. That's not okay. Um, you have in the Democratic Republic of Congo, you have men who rape women to keep themselves safe because it's better to sleep with a virgin to kind of for protection so there's all of uh, sex is used as a or rape is used as a weapon of war so you have all of these different issues that come from toxic masculinity and i think that the system has and by the systems i mean the social system social structures governmental structure political structure those because they are patriarchies the, the response from women is toxic femininity, but those are in a direct response. They're symptomatic of the, the narrative men have been fed. It's not that men are naturally inclined to be that way. It's that they are fed those narratives. I, uh, I met with a woman, her name is Dervla Glynn, and she's amazing. But she works <laughs> for the Congolese men's movement. Um, and so she works in the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, and she's you know she's amazing and very brave uh and she works to help men kind of go through this process of you know you don't need to do these things um and they they abuse men as well so men men are are dying from these dangerous masculinities as well 
or toxic. So, so there's a fine line when it become one becomes a, the other because you can say, you know, it doesn't have to be as stark as this, but there's a reason that men are more successful in suicide because they take these more masculine approaches to suicide than women. Um, so in that regard, like masculine, mask, toxic masculinities are very much a personal issue as well because it's, it's going to come into your everyday decisions. It's not necessarily systemic in the sense of a war, but, but yeah. So Nick, last episode. Yeah, what's going on? Last, it's Nick last episode, you put me on the spot. And you asked me, yeah. you asked me how to, how to, wh- what's the answer for toxic masculinity? I wrote this down. I wrote this down as well. <laughs> how do we fix do we it? Fix That's it, the Nick? question. Tell us. I don't, I, I, let's ask the guest. I, I don't, this, I wrote this down <laughs> to, to ask. I, it's a, it's such a tough question to ask. Here's something that I want to ask, though, and this is uh, offensive, maybe offensive, just like dumb, ignorant boy talk here. Um, because, Grant, have you ever been to a, a woman's march? I have not. I have not either, and, and here's why. Um, I feel like I do not belong there. But why do you feel that way? Uh, because I think that there are... I think that women see me as the enemy uh and thus i it's it's a very similar thing with um like um pride parades like pride parades it's it's supposed to be like in chicago at least it's always it's always like a a bunch of very uh you know uh, uh gay by all of these like wonderful people expressing their pride but then there's a lot of like these like uh, straight white girls uh, that are just kind of like, and then people make fun of them for that, uh, and it's like a very like cliche stereotype. Uh, and then and then and people and some people actually get upset with with those women because they're like, you're not actually here for the same reason that we're here. Um, and so it's it's a thing where it's like, will I? Uh, it's clear that I am, uh, uh, I guess it's maybe not, it's clear that I'm like a male looking type person. And so I don't want that to be like the offset of like, he's not part of this. He's not here for the same. He doesn't understand what we've been going through. He doesn't know our life experiences. Uh, so he's not here for the same reason. And so I think in that way, it's offensive to, to, to go in a way. And I'm just wondering, like, I know that that's also wrong. I know that I shouldn't feel that, and I know that it's... It's not wrong to feel I mean, the way you I feel. I shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, that's just, Maybe there's that's a the reason you feel that way. And right. that's kind of what you have but to But I also at. know that there are people, I know that people encourage me also to go, and so it's just like, why is it, I don't know, why do I feel this way, and why... I feel, okay, so, t- I, 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 one... Let me touch on the white women that you talk about that are straight there at the (laughs) gay pride parade. That is a social construction. Because the first time we see a... The first time gay men are introduced to the mass media, from my personal recollection, is like will and grace. Okay? And a gay man is portrayed as as a straight white woman's accessory. He has to go to the gym, and, and there's only one type of gay, and that is, you know, the the cute uh, gym rat guy who loves to shop, and the perfect counter-narrative to that is Anderson Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but gay men have been kind of accessorized into being okay in public, but then it's like... I can't stand the fact that gay men have to, you know, wear rainbow flags and go to Boys Town in Chicago. And, you know, they're, they're seen as promiscuous and all of these different things. Um, those are all social constructions. Those are all stereotypes. And 
the big issue that gay men in boys town of Chicago have with straight white women is that straight white women will go to a gay bar and be like, no one's buying me drinks because men are supposed to buy me drinks. All of these things. There's so many problematic stereotypes here. Bring your own money, buy your own drinks. If you (laughs) want to go and dance at the bar, it's because they don't want to get hit on. They don't want guys coming up and hitting on them. So they go to the bar because... Otherwise, they're going to be sexually harassed. You know, so you can see like all these issues. I don't know why a, I don't know why a gay person would have an issue with anyone else supporting their cause, um, because we live in an, in a society that's interdependent. There's many different parts, and again, there isn't mutually exclusive groups. You can be a gay person who also is, you know, of a certain social class, of a certain race, of a certain gender, of a certain everything, you know? So that's just one part. Everyone is multifaceted. So in that regard, um, whoever's kind of like shutting down the straight girl who's there, they're in the wrong, in my opinion. Um, there is a there is like a certain pride, though, that I think people have with, with uh, like the the troubles that they've had like they there are people who are like i've had these troubles these are my own no one else has them no one can understand them and and i would hate for other people to assume that they have similar like life situations than me you know what does that make sense but i guess what and i think that even us even like we have like those type of things where we're like hey like this is what i've gone through no one else really understands that and it's very lonely but also uh, there's like a pride in it. Is there? I don't know. I don't. So it, uh, two things. I I've been in your position. Uh, I didn't feel it was right for me to go in March at the repeal the Eighth Amendment. Remove and what that means is they were going to legalize abortion in Ireland, right? And when I was living in Ireland, it wasn't legal, and that was a big push during the during my time there. Um, and so I didn't think it was right because I didn't have the vote. I couldn't vote in Ireland. So I thought, you know, this should be for the those voting. I can get an abortion if I want. I can fly back to the States and get an abortion tomorrow. Um, so let the numbers represent the people here. Because if there's a lot of American, you know, people and Canadian people and whoever else marching in this in this eighth eighth amend repeal the eighth march, it's going to look skewed, right? Um, but I went and I went because of Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail says an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And I think it's your decision. Um, you don't have to go through what everyone else went through to, and you don't have to understand their viewpoint. It's you show up to try to understand because you don't know, and you can't ever know what it's like to walk in everyone's shoes. Um, but I think, especially like, for example, another you know, point in our history, it's important for the white man to show up to those civil rights marches because he's the man in, in Congress. He can vote. He has political sway. So the number one person to have at those political marches are white men. Um, if, if the, if the conversation is cyclical within the group that it, that's being oppressed, nothing is done and no information is spread and no viewpoints are changed and it is uncomfortable. I will say I went to the Obama conversation this summer that he held at University of Illinois, Chicago. I was probably one of, which was very disappointing, one of like 10, 15 white people there. But Obama's everybody's president, right? He's white people's president too. So I show up and it's it's awkward. It's always awkward being the only one in the room. I spend every day telling a class of kids who are pretty much, aside from two kids, they're all African-American. And they all come from very different backgrounds. And to tell them, you know, I don't understand what I don't understand. You know, explain this to me. I can learn from you. You can learn from me. 
But that's a tough position to be in as a teacher on a regular basis, speaking about social justice. Because in, in regards to the, the inequality because of gender, if you're a black female, you are hit with two issues. Not only are you female, you're also a minority. So it's like you get the minority crap, you get the female crap, and then where do you start? Do you know what I mean? So like this weekend was a big win for anyone in the African-American community when um, the Laquan McDonald verdict came back and... I'm forgetting his name. What is the cop's name? Da, 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 da. Van Dyke. Is it? Van Dyke. Jason yeah. Van Dyke comes back as as guilty of second degree murder. Then at the same time, women get smacked down because Brett Kavanaugh gets put into office. Okay, yeah. <laughs> sorry, put into appointed to the court. So, as a if you're a black female, you've had a very strange weekend. Okay, if you are a white male. Or let's say you're a let's say you're a black African American or African American I will say black um, black man who also is misogynist. You've had a great weekend because you've now had the the a sex assault accused sexual assaulter accused man put into the Supreme Court. And you've won your case against police brutality. Like, that's a good weekend for you. So it's all, it's, it's all circumstantial. It's all, it, that's where we have to look at things with multiple lenses, like race, class, gender, simultaneously. Because it's, it's so much more complex than we make it. Go to the women's marches. Go to the civil rights marches. Go to the immigration marches. Those types of things are where you're going to learn that people want you there as opposed to shutting you out. And people who shut you out, they are they are doing themselves and their cause a disservice. I go to a writing group on Fridays, uh, and I'm the only white person in my writing group. I go it's a, by the University of Chicago. It's at Stony, Brook, Stony Island Art Center, which is a center for black history in America, and specifically Chicago. And I am welcomed every single time I go. And I'm the only white person, in my opinion, matters just as much as everyone. Everyone's retired. They're all like 80 years old. And I love these people. But, but I've never, it's never been a discussion of, like, of my race um, and whether or not that's going to make me a, a voice of authority or a voice that has no you know, weight in the group. Because these people have seen, I mean, they've grown up in segregation in America. They've lived in the housing projects. They've, they're professors at University of Chicago. They, they run the, the whole range. Um, and they also have the, the gift of a very long life. And so I think at the end of your life is when you are, I mean, one guy, he's walking around with a bullet in his stomach because of, Jeez. and he's 80 years old. He's writing a book about how he doesn't believe in God. <laughs> but, you know, he's, he's, he'll stop the entire conversation to ask if I have anything to add. You know, and it's not because I'm white. It's because I'm there. And so you have to be there. And it gives you, it, it, I think in that regard, people shouldn't be afraid to show up even if, I mean, there's men that have been supporters of women forever. Look at William Lloyd Garrison. He was a he st- helped publish the um, North Star. He worked with Fed- Frederick Douglass very closely. He was a huge women's rights supporter. Um, worked with Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Tried to get women the right to vote. All of those things. Um, and he was a white man, and he had a voice box because he was. God, I can't remember what his newspaper was. I'll think of it later. Fact check me. <laughs> But William Lloyd Garrison, it's write it down, print out his picture, put it in your kitchen, <laughs> look <laughs> at it every day. Frederick Douglass was a feminist. He was at the Seneca Women's Conference. And then he didn't think women should have the right to vote later. <laughs> uh. um, for all of uh, the listeners of this podcast, are there like things that like we can like consume like are there things that we can read like who are like the who are like the go-to books who are the go-to authors that we can like learn stuff about oh there's so there's so many and there's so many that i don't know 
Um, I would say in this regard, choose something you're, you're interested in. So the, the gender project my students are doing this week, and this is a global affairs class. Gender is one of our global affairs. This is not a gender <laughs> class. This is just me imposing my will on my students. Um, they're choosing their own topic. So one kid is doing Beyonce um, and how she's shaped femininity for women and how, you know, like how she's had an influence in kind of juxtaposition to Taylor Swift's femininity and the image that she portrays for women. Okay. That's my student Isaiah's project. He loves Beyonce so much. It's ridiculous. Um, and Jay-Z. And then also he looks at their marriage quite often because he's very obsessed with the fact that, not obsessed, I shouldn't say obsessed in case he ever listens to this podcast, which I assume he will. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but he loves that they stayed together. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that was a huge, a huge point for him because it's a black couple staying together. Whereas he comes from a single parent household because that has not been his, his, his experience. Um, and then I have another kid. So several of my students are ballerinas. Um, and so one of my students, he's looking at the uh, nude photos that were sent of the ballerinas from the New York company, something with the New York Ballet Company. And he's interested in you know, how, that's, how that's a social injustice for those women. And I have another woman, or another girl in my class who thinks that Brett Kavanaugh's a, a victim of a witch hunt. Wow. That's, those are her words, not mine. But, I mean, and, and she's a, she is a minority female student. So, I mean, you have the whole range, but I think you look into what you're interested in first. And that will lead you down the right path. Um, if you're interested in, you know, feminist literature... I kind of started with Mary Wollstonecraft, and that would bore a lot of people to tears about a vindication for the rights of women. I read that when I returned from Georgia because I was just curious, and that got me really mad about a lot of things. But then I also, uh, Jane Eyre is one of my favorite books, and I just um, read a really good article about reading Jane Eyre while black, while being black, and how that's a very different situation because Bertha, the woman that's kept in the attic, She's not crazy. She's just dark. She's from the West Indies. And so in reality, like she's not crazy. She's not anything else other than she's she's not white. And so I just bought a book called The Wide Saragasso Sea. I can't I think I'm saying that wrong. Um and it's from her perspective, the whole story hmm. and being kept in the attic. So I mean, those are the types of things. Like for me, Femininity and understanding race and class, they are, they are so closely combined. Um, because so often, like, people will, girls will do things like wear a short miniskirt and be like, I'm a feminist because I'm willing to show my body without, you know, really having any thought behind their action. But then you ask girls, you know, when's the first time? So, like, I also am very interested in Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, that type of feminism, which other people um, are saying, you know, well, that's white elitists, uh, you know, uh, heterosexual feminism. Those women have had very few barriers. Well, the, the, the industry that they're in would provide plenty of barriers for them. It also limits their, their voice. They're also a pair you know, but then at the same time, how often have Amy Poehler and Tina Fey been being been accused of being a lesbian, um, as though that's a bad thing? If somebody accuses you of being gay or lesbian, you know, you just say, "Well, thank you," because <laughs> otherwise you perpetuate that that's something wrong. No one's gonna be like, "How dare you call me straight?" That's not a thing. So I would say, follow your interest instead of just throwing out um, an author, because, like, I would say, like, Rebecca Traster, she wrote all the single ladies um, talking about, like, women who are, uh, like, why there's a rise of unmarried women, <laughs> myself among them. But there's a rise of unmarried women in America, women who are choosing not to get married. She did a study on that. Um, I would say read Jane Austen. Read the Bronte sisters if you're interested in 
Victorian novels, even though Jane Austen is the pre-Victorian era, which I was told very clearly. Because Jane Austen is kind of one of my reasons that I was interested in this in the beginning because, or interested in feminism in the beginning, because she's actually like, if you look at Virginia Woolf, a great person to read when you want to talk about feminism. Uh, Virginia Woolf said that she would be quite a lot, like if she found herself alone in the room with Jane Austen, it would be quite an alarming thing. But Jane Austen's been kind of dolled up and dumbed up by her family because they don't want her to be seen as this prickly, kind of violent, scary person that she was. And so we have that as an, as an issue with our historical narrative as well. Um, how are women written in history? And, and so, you know, that was a point of interest for me. Like, who was Jane Austen really? And that leads you down to, okay, why are they stuck in these tropes? Why are they stuck in this in this kind of gender role, even when they when they act outside of their gender role. Um, Jeanette Rankin, she's somebody to look at. First female congresswoman from Missoula, Montana. You can live in Jeanette Rankin Hall. And most people are like, who's Jeanette Rankin? <laughs> she's the only person that voted no for the, uh, after the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor for going to war. Hmm. The single dissenting vote. Which was very unpopular a lot of, amongst a lot of women because they thought it made women look weak. But she was a pacifist. More so than just a feminist. She was a pacifist. Those are her views. So that's well, how she voted. That's, that seems like a lot to look, I don't know if the, any of this is... I don't know if any of this is like very helpful. No, I mean, that's... Yeah, I, I mean... I mean, no, I mean, no, but yes, in some ways, you know, as much as we solve masculinity, I think we solve femininity, uh, but we, we do, we do have some things to look at now because of what Mary has told us. We have reading to get to. I will say this. If you're looking for a, uh, a, a way, a solution to toxic and, uh, masculinity and femininity, mm-hmm. you need to create counter narratives. That is how you, that is how you negate those, those two kind of social structures or social constructs. And the one example that I always give for that, um, you have Martin Luther King standing up, 1963, at the Washington, or sorry, Lincoln Memorial, leading white and black Americans. Okay. Uh, And it is not a coincidence that 50 years later, Barack Obama, a black American, is standing up in front of white and black Americans leading leading the nation. Because when people see the I Have a Dream speech on television, it is put into their understanding that a black man can lead the nation. It will happen in my lifetime that we have a female president because we have now seen a female candidate as the only candidate for the Democratic Party. It's, it's only a matter of time, but that's only a matter of time because it has been put into our understanding as, as something that we can see as a counter narrative. It counters the current narrative. The current narrative, women can't be president. Current narrative, black people can't be president. Both of those, we've seen one of those undone. We don't live in a post-racial society, as we can see very clearly from this last weekend. But the counter narrative is there and it opens a door for a lot of people. It took 50 years for us to have a black leader. It took, what, almost 300 years to have Martin Luther King. So, it takes time. But the counter-narratives are powerful. Right. And I think you've touched on several reasons why, why we even decided to make this podcast. And I would say that the counter-narrative is... A good reason to be doing it um, and I think a lot of the reason that we started it was because we were we felt ignorant on all these subjects so I think looking into these counter narratives is what we should be doing and not only have you given us a lot to think about about femininity but you've set us up for plenty of episodes to come uh, we will definitely do an episode on race and class and um, I would say probably Women in Power sounds like an interesting episode to me, or lack thereof. And their portrayal to, for power. Right. Like how they're portrayed in satire. 
that's something that bothered me about the... And that's what I wrote my master's thesis on, was how women were portrayed... How Hillary Clinton, specifically, was portrayed on SNL. So, uh, definitely check back for those episodes. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you, Mary. You're welcome. You've I been mean. very informative. <laughs> I hope it hasn't been just like a total, like... Uh, not much of a conversation. Well, Just you're, me. You're smarter than both of us. So chat, you chat, get, you chat, get, no way. <laughs> you, get, you get away with it. You get it. a lot of history. <laughs> a lot of history, like, like kind of, uh, what is the word? Plugs, only because I'm a history teacher. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for bringing your knowledge to our humble podcast. Oh, you're so welcome. And uh, I guarantee if you play this for someone else, I'd be like, she's so wrong on so many things. And that's why we have an email address, yeah. which is in the description. Uh, feel free to email us with all of your complaints or whatever. Uh, if you have something specific to Mary, I will pass it on. And I won't read it. So she's, she's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I will live my own ignorance. <laughs> I'm aware. <laughs> Well, yeah, pass along if it's good. Sure. Even if it's bad. Well, we'll read it because it's our email. So, uh, and we'll, you know, feel bad about it or whatever. But um, definitely send it to us regardless. Uh, anything, Nick, any last feelings? No? Okay, I guess we will wrap it up here. Um, this has been our episode on femininity. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next episode. Bye. Awesome. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>